Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. We're going to have our call to worship and then our chalice lighting. Out of the flames of fear, we rise with courage of our deepest convictions to stand for justice, inclusion, and peace. Out of the flames of scrutiny, we rise to proclaim our faith with hope to heal a fractured and hurting world. Out of the flames of doubt, we rise to embrace the mystery, wonder, and awe of all there is and all there is yet to be. Out of the flames of hate, we rise with the force of love, love that celebrates all of our shared humanity. Elizabeth is going to lead us in our chalice lighting. Please rise in body or in spirit. We're going to take a moment to meditate together. Our days are all filled with such joy and sorrow. We celebrate sadness. We celebrate success. We live together in love. We recognize that every day holds joy and regret. So let's spend a moment together in shared meditation as we remember all of the people and the events that have been so present to us this week. You can just get your body comfortable, your feet on the floor, your eyes closed. And as we sit, as we breathe, We see the faces of the people we encountered this week. We see neighbors, colleagues, friends, and family. All of the people we bump into and trip over who fill our days. Let's breathe in gratitude for all the joy we witnessed this week. And breathe out love for all those in need of healing. And we breathe in gratitude for all the kindness we encountered. And we breathe out love for all of those people carrying heavy burdens.
We breathe in gratitude. We breathe out love. We breathe together in shared meditation. Last month I was in California answering a clergy call. People put out clergy calls when love and compassion are needed somewhere. There's moral injury or a place in need of healing. Think of clergy as the white blood cells of our shared American body. When there's a problem in the body, the white blood cells race to the infection or sickness. They cause inflammation and discomfort to alert the rest of the body that there's a problem, drawing attention to whatever that place in need is. My cousin, the vet, called the white blood cells the warriors of the human body. I think the clergy, when we fully embrace the ministry, are the warriors of the American body answering the call and traveling to wherever it is that we're needed. And not just bringing healing, but like those blood cells, we agitate to cause discomfort and call attention to a wound. And right now, that wound is at our border. We've been hearing about this southern border for years, with an administration calling attention to it regularly, and recently we had this massive shutdown of our government as part of an attempt to build a wall along it. I could spend a lot of time talking about the border and the history of open borders and difficulty in defining borders. And these are, these are imaginary lines drawn on maps. As much as we like to think these lines are real, most of that thinking comes out of a lack of historical context and a concerted effort at fear-mongering. It is useful for any group that wants to inspire loyalty to name an enemy, drawing lines around ourselves and declaring the enemy all the people who are outside the line. That serves a political purpose. The depth of human pain being created by new interest in impermeable borders is no more apparent than when you're standing on one of those lines, which is what I was doing in December, and what I've done many times before, though usually in Arizona. Some of our borders are marked by fences made of iron, where the space is wide enough for an arm to pass through. And I know an arm can fit through because I've watched people reach through these fences so that they can touch their children, or hug a brother, or a sister, or a parent. I've seen them share iPod, you know, share an e-bud, an airbud from their iPods. I've seen people pass through homemade snacks. Some of our borders don't have fences because the imaginary lines run through deserts or down the center of rivers. Some of our borders are open because those imaginary lines run through people's property or through animal sanctuaries. And some of the imaginary lines run right down the middle of streets in cities that were somehow built across where they decided these lines should be drawn. 
And some of those imaginary lines actually have checkpoints where people can pass freely through. Some of those lines are drawn through towns telling us that people on one side are different from the people on the other. But those lines don't exist in real life. Towns are still towns with the same townspeople on both sides. Nogales calls the line the International Boulevard. And you can drive right down the center of it. You, for decades, you could be simultaneously on both sides of the border. And until about 20 years ago, the only sign that you were jumping countries when you crossed the line was a big welcome sign. And now there's a cement wall. In the last few years, we've gotten very serious about keeping people out keeping people on their side, not letting people in. And we've been covering those fences, those fences that people stick their arms through. We've been covering them with barbed wire, making even the touching of a child impossible. There have always been border crosses, people who live on one side and work on the other, people with family here or family there, people who have lived on these borders crossing these lines marked, you know, with signs like when you're going from New York to New Jersey, you know. The borders in Texas, which were the first to become impermeable, were first constructed actually in this country to keep people in because people of color were fleeing, trying to get themselves to Mexico where it was going to be safer and they were going to live a better life. So we we created a barrier to make sure no one could leave. And later in our history, some of those borders were laughable. I mean, there were saloons during Prohibition. Mexicans were building bars across the border so that Americans could come in on the American side and walk over to the Mexican side and drink legally. <laughs> Today is poverty and political instability face people in Central America, more specifically in Honduras, families are heading north trying to establish themselves in a place that is far from violence where they can find work. Since last spring, it's been our official policy to remove children from their parents for the purpose of creating suffering, hoping to deter more people from coming to our country. So there are 15,000 children, and I may be wrong about the number. It might be 17,000 children There was recently a little debate, but there are about 15,000 children now living and dying in these tent camps and not understanding the danger. 6,000 people fleeing war recently came to our border, and in response, we sent soldiers armed with M16s in combat gear. And that's why I went to California. Because our clergy are the white blood cells of the American body. We move as warriors to the wounded places. The purpose of nonviolent action is to escalate crisis. It is to create a mirror for both the people on site and for the nation with the intention of sparking moral conscience. So there we were. We started this action with a press conference. I mean, the point is to be seen. There were dozens of news organizations, including all the major ones. NBC was there, the AP, Newsweek was there. Everyone showed up. The interfaith clergy were there. There were hundreds of us, ministers, priests, rabbis, imams. 
And we were there declaring a desire for justice. And together we prayed. And at that point, we started to walk. We had been prepared. We'd been told that we were going to walk about three miles and that a lot of it would be through mud and soft, stand, soft sand. So the press is there, but you know, like they're all dressed for work. And the women are wearing heels. They've got big cameras. I thought there is no way they're following us. And I, I was actually I was worried because you know if it isn't seen, the action has a much smaller impact. And they didn't follow us at first. I was right. They didn't. But we walked. We walked first on blacktop, and then we walked through mud and a vast desert wasteland. And then we hit the Pacific Ocean. And at the Pacific, we turned south, and we walked on the beach. And in front of us was Tijuana, Mexico. And that section of beach is just littered with horse manure and dead birds. We had been walking in these lines of four. My companions were three other UU ministers, women. And until we got to the sand, we had been chanting and singing. And I admit we were kind of chatting a little bit, but we, we were using our outside voices. And when we got to the ocean, hundreds of us got very hushed. And we stopped to anoint the people in the front. Some of us were willing to risk arrest, to put their bodies completely on the line for this action. There's always some risk of arrest whenever we do something like this, but um, you can move closer or further from that possibility. And I had made the choice to move further so those who had chosen to move closer stepped up. And we encircled them and we prayed for them. And then we all silently continued this walk. And we walked over gray dunes and black sand, moving closer to a border that was becoming larger and more apparent. There were these seals playing in the ocean. And the border itself juts out maybe 40 feet into the ocean, which, by the way, you can probably walk around at low tide. And the seals are, are swimming around, and I thought, they have no idea that they're just crossing these imaginary lines. And then the soldiers were in view, they stood in camouflage. They were holding these massive automatic rifles. They, were, they had covered their faces in green scarves so you could only see their eyes. Some were wearing sunglasses. I'm sure that they did that because the sand was blowing, but the experience of confronting armed men whose faces you can't see dehumanizes them and increases the sense that we are different. It holds up this picture of instruments of the state, instruments of violence, 
and this praying clergy, this us and them. And behind them were rolls of barbed wire, and behind the wire is the fence, and it extends maybe 12 feet up, and it ran along the sand, dividing the people on either side. The migrant camp had been moved. They heard we were coming, and they got rid of all the people. It seems the Mexican government is working in partnership with our own, keeping those people who had been making their camp along the fence, keeping them out of sight. And while the press didn't follow us, they were there. They were in Mexico waiting for us, along with a whole lot of Mexican people. Our action that day was prayer. Those able to take the risk went forward and knelt down before the soldiers, and we all raised our hands and closed our eyes and begged God's forgiveness that we might be so arrogant as to pretend the earth is ours to divide. And we prayed for the people who are hungry and tired and desperate for safety, and we prayed for an end of fear and the beginning of a new age of compassion, and we prayed to save us all. 32 people were arrested. We held up a mirror to our government, and they smashed it hoping to stop it from reflecting. <clears throat> Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this while standing in a wall. It is indeed an honor to be in this city which stands as a symbol of the divisions of men on the face of earth. For here, on either side of the wall, are God's children and no man-made barrier can obliterate that fact. He was in East Berlin, and since that speech, the wall has come down, creating a unity where there had been division. I'm not sure what sin is, but walls that divide with the intention of keeping people in or out, of keeping people from living shared lives in community seems like sin made manifest, the embodiment of our brokenness. It is a lived demonstration of corporate segregation, the opposite of integrity, of wholeness. The lines are imaginary. The walls are not. The lines drawn on maps only exist if we erect barriers to declare our intent to divide. When the Mexican border was negotiated and ultimately decided, it was on paper. Very few people had ever been to large parts of the land that were now divided. They sent people out to the border, entire parties of people who were lost in the deserts just trying to figure out where these parties these borders are supposed to be, and search parties went out looking for them who were equally unable to draw those lines, to know where the divisions might go. In college, I studied in Northern Ireland when that nation was at war, and I lived in Derry. And as an outsider who wasn't raised on hate and fear, the wall that segregated the Irish from the English seemed random and annoying. 
That is, until we accidentally crossed it one night without our passports and found ourselves confronted by soldiers, weaned as children on the idea that knowing who is us and who is them is a matter of life and death. And we had to prove that we were part of us in whatever way they were defining it. We are us. Divided cities like Derry and Berlin and Nogales always require an us and a them. As a religious organization, and really as Unitarian Universalists, we know the world needs to change, not because of a particular political viewpoint, but because part of our shared spiritual practice is a deepening relationship with the interconnectedness of existence. We know there is no us and them. There is only us, all of us. And those are healing words. There is only us, one human family, one planetary family, all living together on this overcrowded, fragile planet. We could become yet another dissenting voice, another them, if we wanted to, in a room full of thems, declare ourselves different, or we can embody our spirit of love and inclusion. We can declare ourselves on the side of integrity, on the side of wholeness, as the manifestation of love. We're here to bring this unifying love into the world, to save humanity from ultra-individualism, to provide respite for everyone, including and especially the marginalized, those people who have been left on the other side of the imaginary lines. We're here to embody the grace of love, to learn how to be loving, to work together to create a community that loves so much we manifest justice. We're called to radical inclusivity. It's at the heart of our shared spiritual path to reach our arms out as far as they can extend and pull people in from the margins. It is our mission to dismantle walls, to erase imaginary lines. We are witnesses to interconnection, bearers of the good news. We are one people, united in common humanity. We're here to help each other to be partners and companions. And as you use, we're here to declare an end to the imaginary lines to make love and justice manifest in the world too easily divided. Whether those divisions are happening in our families, our neighborhoods, our congregations, our nation, or across international boundaries, the message is the same. There is no them. There is only us. There is only us. There is only us. Thank heaven, there is only us. There is all of us.